Need a few minutes to reset? Great Minds is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're recording from, whose culture includes a rich tradition of yarning, music and culture keeping, the Camarayagal and Gadigal people and their elders past and present. In a lot of musicians' stories, there's a moment in time when their parent wants to come and see them play. For Ray Ahn, from one of the world's longest-running punk bands, The Hard-Ons, that moment came right at the time when punk music and Nazis had intersected in Sydney. And I said, no, that's not a good idea. And he said, why? And I said, look, um, there are some neo-Nazi skinheads at these shows and sometimes it gets really violent, right? He wanted me to explain what neo-Nazi skinheads are. And I said, well, you know, these are white power fascists. They're, they're extreme racists. They're just unpleasant, violent people. I wouldn't want you there. And my dad said to me, well, you and Kesh, who's Sri Lankan and he's a drummer with dark skin, he said, you and Kesh take your shirts off when you play. And I said, why? And he said, well, so that all the idiots can see your skin colour from right from the back of the room. Play with your shirts off. I'm Yumi Steins, and this is Seen, a podcast about trailblazers who, unseen by the mainstream, rise to excellence anyway. In this episode of Seen, I'm chatting with one of the founding members of the Hard-Ons, the legendary Ray Ahn. It got to a stage where playing bare-chested was a trademark of, of ours, you know. We'd all play bare-chested. And that was because my dad said to me, you know, show them, show them who you are. Heads up, there's a bit of explicit language and the use of racist slang. Please listen with discretion. I didn't know at the time, but what that was doing was it was normalising the powerful Asian person. It was normalising it, just as Bruce Lee had done. I first met Ray about 15 years ago, and he was pretty much the same then as he is now. A funny, compact guy with long, dead straight hair and skinny jeans. Like, if you spotted him in the street, you'd go, I bet that guy plays in a band. The hair is grey now, but apart from that, he's barely changed. Hi, Yumi. Good to talk to you. Ray's family moved from Korea to Australia in 1974 when he was nine years old. Before he finished high school, he'd formed Sydney band The Hard-Ons, which was, and still is, the embodiment of the original idea of punk. We said, we are going to go and turn people off. What is the worst, least commercial name we can pick? And I said, The Hard-Ons. Let's call ourselves The Hard-Ons. That's it. No radio airplay, no TV weekly, nothing like that. It's gone. But what we've got in place is just an open road to just rampage artistically, do whatever the hell you want. And that is, it's completely intoxicating, you know? Come all the way from Korea, a place that was at the time shackled and enslaved, to a place that had so much freedom that your head was spinning. And that's why punk rock was so good for me, because it spoke to me. Back in Korea, Ray's dad had trained as a pilot in the military. He'd lived through Japanese occupation, World War II and the Korean War. He was, in fact, official pilot to Korea's then president, an insecure position as the president was in constant danger of assassination. 
1974, Ray's dad was ready to move the family to safety. You know, the spectre of war was something that he, he didn't want me and my brother to be involved with. He knew that if we stayed there, my brother and I eventually would have had to join compulsory military service for two years. He didn't want me and my brother doing that kind of stuff. Some of the stories he told me were so horrifying, and I think he wanted me to be horrified. The Korean War had been devastating for Ray's parents. My father was 15 when he um, lost both his parents and his uh, older brother, and my mother lost an older brother. When we left, um, they had a 10 o'clock curfew to make patrolling the streets and that easier against North Korean spies and things like that. So, you know, it wasn't a pleasant place when we left. Back in the early 70s, there was actually a shortage of pilots in Australia. So they were headhunting prospective immigrants from countries that had citizens that actually wanted to leave, you know. There was a lot of work going in places like North Queensland on the cattle farms and things like that. So that's where my father ended up. Horrible job. He hated it, but uh, he did it so that uh, our family could move here and uh, start our life again, as it were. Ray, do you remember that move? Yeah, it was like going to Disneyland. And we came here and we saw big sports cars and cars with like fins and wings and, you know, big trucks and all that kind of stuff. I remember thinking it was just really wonderful. I remember we stayed with a family, a Korean family in uh, French's Forest, big wide streets and huge houses, long driveways with cars in them and very green, surrounded by trees and whatnot. This family was a few years ahead of Ray's. The teenage kids spoke fluent English and they helped prepare Ray and his brother for the Australian culture shock. I remember them all sitting there with a TV on. They were watching a tennis match and and they were screaming at the TV set. Every time Yvonne Goolagong would uh, win a point, they'd be like just doing cartwheels and stuff like that. They explained that this was Australia's um, hero at the time, you know, Yvonne Goolagong. I just arrived in the country, so I didn't really know any what to make of it other than, well, that's what, that's what they like here. They like tennis. Was racism something that your friends talked about during that time? Oh, yeah. We, we, we were warned about all that stuff. I remember the 15-year-old kid told me that there's one word that the white Australians loved, and it was ching chong. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. Mate, who are you talking to? Of course I'm familiar with the term. <laughs> Ching Chong back in 1974, it was almost like a call to arms for white Australians, <laughs> you know. It's like, um, let's show these people that they're different and we find that a little bit funny, you know. They warned me and my brother, just brace yourselves for impact because that's what you're going to hear when you go to school. Me and my brother went to this school and I remember thinking, when, when, when's it going to happen, you know, when's this word going to happen? And, you know, it took about a day, I, I guess. How did your dad react? So pragmatic about everything. It's like, let me get this right. I went through World War II, the Korean War. I lost both my parents. I lost my brother. Your mum's lost her older brother. We survived. You were staring at the reality of going and doing military conscription for two years. And you come to Australia, a relatively peaceful paradise, and you're worried about a word. (laughs) Let's, you know, get real. You know, it's a word. Who cares? Suck it up. We are different. We look different. And people being what they are, they're just going to focus on it, fixate on it, and given the right opportunity, they're going to remind you 
that you're different. But look at the trade-off. The trade-off is that we're here. So when I was a kid, there were few, very few situations where it paid to be Asian in Australia, but doing martial arts was one of those situations. Oh, yeah, totally. Look, when you think about the image of the Asian back in the early 70s, you know, Mickey Rooney pretending to be an Asian landlord in um, that movie uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But that was two weeks ago. You cannot go on or keep ringing my bell. You disturb me. You must have a key made. It's grotesque. And then you, you had, of course, um, cartoons on TV like Batfink. Batfink had a sidekick. His name was Karate. That's the worst picture of me I've ever seen. I look so stupid. That's not your picture, Karate. That's a mirror. And he was drawn with slanty eyes and bucky teeth and that. And he had that accent and everything. So Asians weren't exactly the strong desirable people to be. They were like, you know, goofballs, you know, sideshow attractions, seen as a little bit of comic relief for white people. Something to be laughed at, that kind of thing. Except there were two Asians that were actually cool, right? It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. Bruce Lee. And then you, you had, of course... David Carradine. As quickly as you can, snatch the pebble from my hand. When you can take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to leave. And now, David Carradine is white, but he played a, a half Chinese guy in a TV show called Kung Fu. And you just couldn't get a wiser person. This guy was really wise, really powerful, really measured in his approach to life and really admirable, you know? So those two characters loomed large when I was growing up. When you look back on it now, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. Ray's family was settling into Australian life. Ray was an honours student, nailing every subject and topping his Year 7 class in English. The whole family was squeezed into a two-bedroom unit out in the suburbs of southwest Sydney. Next door lived an older teenage boy. One day I heard over the fence all this music coming. So I put my foot up on the first rung of the, the fence paling there and um, had a look and he was in his garage. He had a pool table set up and uh, he was playing pool with his friends and they were blasting music. He, he saw me and asked me to come over. So I went over and um, you know I hung out with him and we became pretty good friends. He'd get his records out and we'd play these records. So we'd spend hours listening to these records. And uh, that was just before punk had actually happened. The biggest bands at the time were The Eagles, Simon and Garfunkel and Fleetwood Mac. And from Australia, ACDC, Bee Gees, Skyhooks and deeply tedious but inexplicably popular bands like Sherbet and Little River Band. And then, of course, when Sex Pistols released all these records, he went and bought them and he, and he came up to me and said, look, you can have this single. I don't really like it. And it was God Save the Queen. I didn't really know what to make of it other than I just can't wait to go home and play this. And I played it and I thought, this is great. So that was my record that I would play to my friends. And I still have the record in my possession. It was nuts. At the time, 
there was a huge dichotomy. Turn on the TV and you see people like Elton John or Rod Stewart, huge, huge names. You see these people and you just go, well, it's pleasant, but I just can't relate to it. Punk rock to me was so short and sharp and live for today and not worry about tomorrow. It was just really explosive and orally very violent. A little kid's just going to go away from the music with nothing but really high impressions of it. So at what point did you decide, I want to be in a band, I want to, I want to be one of the makers of this noise? Uh, I guess I was 14 going on 15 at the time. I bumped into Blackie and Kesh in my same year. They were playing this um, a tape on this ghetto blaster that they had and I, I stood and listened to them and, and the music was incredible. It was um, this blasting hard rock. And then I realised that that was their band. Ray and Blackie started hanging out, swapping records and living like teenagers do, deep in the details of their chosen subculture. Ray remembers them arguing about which song was the world's heaviest. He also became Blackie and Kesha's artist, drawing pictures for their band, making demo cassette covers, painting the kick drum. Blackie was comfortable enough with Ray to shoot the breeze about the band and certain band members, specifically the bass player. Blackie started saying, look, he's such a nice guy and he's a really good bass player, but I'm not sure if he fits our band. His hair's kind of too long. He was wearing bell bottoms. Everyone else is wearing straight legs. And he was more of the Ted Nugent, Van Halen, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Janis Joplin, The Doors, you know, the older, older generation of uh, rockers. What did we like? We liked Devo, Japan, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, XTC, The Cure, Elvis Costello. Ray took this as a sign. So I went home, I said, Mom, Mom, I need some money. I've got to buy a bass guitar. So I ran to Bankstown Rock Music, which was a shop that was in our neighbourhood. Went there, bought a bass. Bass in hand, Ray joined the band. They renamed themselves the Hard-Ons. But there was one problem. And I go, look, I have to tell you something, right? I don't really know how to play the bass. And he said, don't worry about it. After two weeks, Blackie's like, Right, we got a gig. And I've got photos from this gig, right? We played in the lounge room of our drummer, Kesh, his family, and it was a birthday party. So basically, it was like 50 Sri Lankans in the room. As soon as we started playing, they just erupted. They just, they mobbed us. It was, they were shocked how good we were. Then it just dawned on me that punk rock is a real gateway. It's, it's a real fast-tracking method of being an artist. You don't really have to be technically advanced, you just have to have a lot of unmitigated gall and um, a lot of hook to do and get up and go, and uh, you can do it. It felt like after that one party, after two weeks of band practice, it felt like I'd arrived. What happened that day in a lounge room in Sydney's West was a million miles away from where the music industry was at the time. Punk rock, in its essence, is about making chaotic art chaotically while being deeply suspicious of anything popular or mainstream. But punk rock as it was then, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, the Stooges, was also all white. But it didn't matter. The hard-ons started booking shows in Sydney, pulling crowds and making lots of noise. 
With Ray's dad's instruction, the hard-ons started playing their gigs shirtless and it became their signature. I'm not kidding you. You go and have a look at photos on Google. You know, I'm not wearing too many shirts there, you know. I've always played bare-chested. I get full head-to-toe goosebumps thinking about Indigenous football player Nicky Winmar lifting up his shirt and pointing to the colour of the skin on his body. And same when I think about the hard-ons defiantly showing who they are. Because the Australian music industry wasn't reflecting Australia at the time, and nor was Australian television. As Ray says, the best Asian representation we got at the time was the mocking and humiliation of Asian people. But every now and then, the establishment surprises us. When I was growing up in the mid to late 70s, my family would religiously watch Countdown. When I was a little kid, it was a huge part of the weekend consciousness of Australians. It was a big, big deal. Countdown, for whatever reason, loved a couple of bands that I loved. One was uh, Hush. Two, two of the guys in Hush were Chinese, right? or at least half Chinese. Les is half Chinese. And they're obviously visually very, very Asian. You know, they, they weren't sidemen at all. The lead singer, he was white. He was English, actually. But you could see who the star was in that band, and it was Les. He was a lead guitarist, and he wasn't a shrinking violet. He was very showy and obviously a good guitar player, but striking... Les Gock, the lead guitarist for Hush, was a bona fide rock star. You can't take your eyes away or your ears away. You just can't slam that much striking charisma into one person because it's not just the fact that he was wearing skin-tight clothes that were shiny and he was skinny, but his hair was really long. He had all these this um, attractive symmetry and shape to his body shape as it was. And then you, you give him that guitar and he's moving in a way that's throwing all these incredible shapes and then you hear him and you just go, well, this, this guy's, this is a powerful person. I didn't know at the time, but what that was, I guess, doing was it was normalising the powerful Asian person. It was normalising it, just as Bruce Lee had done. Not only that, but something that's a white society, a predominantly white society would find desirable that a white person would have. I remember watching the same show. I'm 10 years younger than Ray, so I must have been a little kid, but I remember being shocked, shocked to see this Asian guy peacocking and prancing around on stage. Part of me was like, how dare you? He wasn't quiet and dignified like my Japanese uncles or obsequious and downtrodden like what I'd seen on TV. He was an Asian man embodying Big dick energy. The Hard-Ons have now been playing for four decades. They've endured longer than any other punk band in Australia, with the possible exception of Nick Cave. Have you ever had any younger punk rock kids feedback to you, Ray, and say it's because of you that I, an Australian Asian male or female, thought that I could actually do it as well? Yes, a few people have. Brian Estepe is a Filipino-born singer-songwriter. He's got record deals in places like Spain. Very, very talented. And I remember seeing him all over Facebook and stuff like that. His music's incredible. Out of the blue, one day he um, wrote to me and said, you inspire me as an Asian Australian. And I thought, 
it, it's, it's really nice. You know, there's this big movement to try and get more representation of women's acts on stage on big festivals, but there isn't that kind of pushing for um, Asian representation on rock festivals at all. I never even thought about it, and I think maybe I should have used my power to go, hey, listen, I can't play your festival unless you get me some more acts. Now, you've got Smashing Pumpkins there, so that's good, but last year... I was the only Asian here, you know, other than the cleaners after we finished. Surely there are a lot of Asian bands around. Can we get them on stage? Maybe I would have said that, you know, but at the time I was just, I think, maybe even shamefully, I was just happy to just play. So for people who don't know the career of the Hard-Ons, what are some of the heights that you have ascended? Like what are some, are some of the great accomplishments? I think the fact that we stayed completely invisible to the mainstream somehow. Absolutely nobody knows who we are, but at the same time, we are very well known in the right circles. Not only well known, but we're really, really well loved in the right circles. I think that's a testament to our job that we did to deliberately be abrasive to the mainstream, to be unpalatable as it were. And at the same time, you've got this life here in Australia where you live in the suburbs, you've got a wife, you've got a couple of kids, you volunteer at the school um, sausage sizzle, and you work sometimes in a records shop where I've seen you at work. You're really humble and open and you're personable and you're ready for a chat. But on stage, you're also a rock star. Like you hold your bass really low, you play well, you've got great hair, you play with your shirt off, you're fucking cool. So... Does it ever frustrate you that they're so irreconcilable, these two personalities? No, because um, it's what I do is fictional. Art is fictional. It's like, uh, it's like a movie, you know? I don't expect it to be anything other than irreconcilable. It's, a, it's just a fantastic hobby, you know what I mean? Seen and unseen. Being able to choose to remain unseen by the haters, the people that you have no interest in speaking to, being unapologetically for your people and them only, it's a theme we unpack a lot on this podcast. That yes, there is a validating and humanising magic in being seen, but let's not underestimate the power of being able to choose. I knew that I was different, but... That's, that's the magic of punk rock, that it gives you unfettered, unlimited access to, you know, some people might call it arrogance, but it's unshakable self-beliefs. You, you believe that whatever you're doing is 100% valid, you know, and that's what punk rock does to you. It just completely supercharges you and energizes you. When punk rock came along, you had people like Susie Sue wearing bras with the nipples cut out and stuff like that, designed not to titillate, but to shock and get a reaction. The hard-ons had already had a leg up in that department because we were already alienated and different to begin with. We were already different skin colour. So, of course, punk rock was going to be the perfect vehicle for people who are already being told that they don't belong. To me, punk rock, in its purest form, is a great voice for the alien, the underprivileged, and people who are different. And in our case, it just happens that we were different in a skin colour kind of a way. But we ran with that concept. 
I loved it. This has been Seen. I'm your host, Yumi Steins. Created by Bernadette Fung Nam Nguyen with AudioCraft in collaboration with SBS. From AudioCraft, this show was produced by Bernadette Fung Nam Nguyen and Cassandra Steve. Our junior producer is Alison Zwang. Sound design and mix is done by Ravi Gupta and executive producer is Kate Montague. The SBS team are Caroline Gates, Joel Supple and Max Gosford. Our podcast artwork is created by EVO Studios. Music is by Yo. Hi, this is Les Gock from Hush. Well, that was really nice, a really nice thing for, for Ray to say, and I'm very flattered and slightly embarrassed. As much as I dreamt night and day of being in a band, being on stage, it, it just didn't seem like it was going to be possible. The place of Asianness in the late 60s, early 70s, it was borderline embarrassing. You've got to remember that the White Australia policy wasn't removed for three or four years after I joined Hush. In those days, blue-collar working class, you left school when you were 15 or 16, you did a trade, and then on Friday and Saturday night, you just got drunk and went to see a band. And a band like Hush, who dressed up in this kind of androgynous, totally off-the-planet with these Asian people, with whole Asian thing. It was the last thing you would think would work, but it was totally embraced. And hopefully this is borne out by Ray and, and also Kate Sobrano said the same thing to me too, that she and her brother watch Countdown. When they saw me and, and Rick on Countdown, they, they realised maybe they could do it as well. It's important for me now to look back and see that we were able to confuse some of the young Asian kids with confidence that they may not have had before, confidence that not only shouldn't they be embarrassed about their ethnic background, but maybe there is something in there that is special and that they can bring out of themselves that is unique, still Australian, but in a kind of a new, unique way. Mm -hmm.